It is science fiction has become reality. And as we can talk about in the show, uh, you know, the clinical progress that we're seeing in the treatment of diseases like sickle cell disease is it's early days, but so far the results have been pretty extraordinary. We have a tool that complements the full sequence that we've got now with the human genome, uh, because now we've got a tool that can actually go into cells and make those edits, make those repairs that give us the hope that we can finally cure diseases like hemophilia and sickle cell disease and cystic fibrosis and this enormous long list of thousands of genetic diseases, cancers. Welcome to Straight Talk, where we cut through the BS and get straight into real conversations with some of the best minds on the planet. I am your host, Af Mohotra. I am blessed to be leading these extraordinary discussions and asking tough questions that then elicit insightful answers, accelerating our awareness of the biggest issues impacting our lives and the future of humanity. Kevin, absolutely um, thrilled to have you on the show. So this is, of course, straight talking, and, and you know we're going to keep this in in flow, and we'll edit it as we need to. Yep, sure thing. Um, you know, one of the one of the most important aspects of our, our lives moving forward is, especially post COVID, of course, is this um, general acceleration in awareness at every level possible in society of um, our health. And this concept of human wellness has, um, you know, amplified itself and become so real for all of us because each one of us suffers personally or directly or indirectly, some form of trauma on the back of COVID. We either lost someone or uh, suffered ourselves or someone was terribly ill in the family and so on. And so when you think about uh, diseases and you think about pandemics, and then you think about self-preservation, because it does start with, it, with, with that um, fight or flight type of mentality to human reaction, more and more people, even non-scientists, those who've never really bothered to explore science in any way, shape or form, have decided to take subscriptions out to, to the scientific journal here, or the, even The Economist or The Telegraph or the, um, the subscription on, online to Bloomberg or whatever it may be to read more about things that relate to health. And if you take it to another level, it's anti-aging, you know, diets of all sorts. Uh, heck, even Ayurvedic diets have come back from and actually been you know sort of um, brought into the western world out of india like yoga and various other things and people are looking at all types of um, remedies and potions to keep themselves well and at the core of it you know there's certain things you can address but there's certain things that you can't and just before the show started i was you know being open and frank and straight talking with with kevin about my personal journey with my health which has been uh, a roller coaster, really. I mean, I could call it massively traumatic. That would be super negative. So I'll call it a roller coaster. And it's helped me make friends with uncertainty, which is a, a, a term I coined back in 2013 when I real, realized I couldn't control anything. And so this show is very important to me personally, uh, not just to our straight talkers. And we have thousands of thousands of people watching this. And every word you say today is going to be um, important for me. And I will try and take this conversation in many directions, but it will be a personal conversation for me as it, as it is for you, of course, because you have a personal story as to why you are here today, which we'll get into in a moment. So uh, to 
starts, I mean, Kevin is, um, you know, he'll describe his journey, but of course there are two really important books that I, that I know of, Editing Humanity, which is the most recent one that you wrote and, and uh, released in October, 2020. So this is uh, maybe the eye of the storm when it comes to COVID, I mean, this was during COVID, right? Um, and then you wrote Cracking the Genome in 2001. And both, uh, I, want, I want to mention this, one is 336 pages of content and insight, which is editing humanity. The other one is 288 pages. Uh -huh. So a lot of content, a lot of knowledge uh, yeah. that's been, um, that's manifested in these books and, and transmitted into these books. And of yeah. course, you've done a lot of other research. So firstly, welcome to the show. Uh, an honor Thank to you have so you on the show. Um, you're a Brit. You're a Brit. So, uh, you know, yep. welcome, welcome to the show from another Brit. Yeah. Uh, yet you've uh, migrated to the States 35 years ago in, in D.C. and you have a thriving life there, which we want to you know learn all about. So before I start, one of the most important things about Straight Talk is this personal story you know, as to why. Why do you do what you do? Why did you write this book? How did you get to where you've got to? Because, of course, yeah. it's so important. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Who is Kevin? And from the Watford days in England, <laughs> uh, how, how did you end up in D.C.? And what's the story here? And then, of course, yeah. the books. Yeah, as we were saying just before we started recording, our uh, born born and raised in in northwest London, uh, very close to where you're residing, um, and then um, moved to the states after my PhD. So I'm a tr tr by training, I'm a biochemist slash geneticist, and I moved to the states to do my postdoctoral research, thinking with the dream, naive as it turned out, to become a a leading researcher in molecular biology or some aspect of genetics or something quickly realized I was out of my depth, pined to be one of my lab mates who was submitting and publishing papers in the elite science and medical journals. And I thought the only way I'm going to see my name published in one of those journals is if I can weasel my way in to join the staff of one of them. And my eureka moment in the lab came in 1989 when I saw an ad in the back of Nature to join the editorial staff of Nature, one of the most elite and prestigious uh, science journals in the world, right? headquartered in London. And um, so I got that job and have uh, pursued a career in science publishing for the last 32-ish years. Um, and along the way, as you point, kindly pointed out, uh, have written books. All of my books have been uh, drawing back to my training as a geneticist, which is my first love scientifically, and to try to showcase for as broad and wide and diverse an audience as I can, mm -hmm. the societal and medical and historical importance of advances in genetics and genomics, um, mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in, enabled by new technologies in DNA sequencing, consumer genetics, and so on. So there've been four or five books along the way and the most recent book, Editing Humanity, was me uh, belatedly, because I kind of missed it when the first papers were being published, mm. belatedly jumping on the CRISPR bandwagon or the CRISPR craze as it's been talked. Suddenly the penny dropped for me around 2016, 2017. CRISPR was going to be huge as an enabling technology to allow us to fix and repair DNA in any organism, humans, of course, but really any organism. And so uh, scientists suddenly had at their disposal uh, a toolkit that allowed them to edit DNA, much like you and I would edit the script for a podcast or, or a, a book chapter, 
Uh, and that was extraordinary because when I was doing my PhD in London in the 1980s at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, um, the idea that you could go in with an eraser and molecularly kind of tweak the DNA sequence of a key gene uh, and fix it, that was completely, it wasn't just science fiction, that was nuts, that was absurd. We didn't even sort of talk about that down the pub. Um, but here we are, it is science fiction has become reality. And as we can talk about in the show, uh, you know, the clinical progress that we're seeing in the treatment of diseases like sickle cell disease is it's early days, but so far the results have been pretty extraordinary. Mm, incredible. So let's go right into it. So thank you for sharing that. And we'll come back to you and your personal journey as we sort of travel yeah. travel this, uh, this conversation. So uh, you've started... Um, your research at a very early stage and you talk about science fiction of course yeah. and actually to some extent when when you think about CRISPR as a tool if you want to call it a tool or a capability or a combination of many things really actually um it, it is it is it is extraordinary and it feels almost a bit godlike to some extent where now you have this ability to augment and change the destiny of human life um, it could be a child, it could be uh, me, you know, to some extent where I've been going through a series of different, um, you know, uh, traumatic um, diseases or ill health repeatedly. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm 44. I want to live the next 44, hopefully, years of my life differently. And I, I would bite someone's arm off if there was a, a way for me to live a more healthy and fulfilled life, because, of course, ill health takes it all out of you. You talked about sickle cell. And, and there are more, um, even more traumatic illnesses out there, some incurable. I mean, it's, 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 it's so distressing to know that there's certain illnesses, cancer in particular, that there, there, there are some, not many, luckily, that are incurable at this, at this stage. And, and then you look at CRISPR. And then um, you have your first book, Cracking the Genome. I just want, I want you to just tell us a little bit about um, that book, and then we'll go into editing humanity. Yeah. So, so when you wrote that in 2001, I mean, that was, gosh, you know, 20 years back, over tw 21, 21 years ago, right? Um, two decades ago, two decades <laughs> ago, yeah. you, you look great, by the way, two decades ago, uh, you wrote this book. Where was your head at when you wrote this? And I've seen the summary of it. It's fantastic. So what were you thinking when you wrote this book and how did you feel? And what was the, what was the, what was the yeah, yeah. So that, that, that Cracking the Genome was a book about the race for the Human Genome Project. So I'm sure right. most of your viewers have heard of the, uh, the Human Genome Project and the hype yeah. uh, around it. Uh, it was a, a very ambitious project that was officially launched in 1990 uh, to sequence once and for all the complete genetic, the, the complete DNA sequence of a human being. Those are the DNA is made up of four subunits or base pairs. Right. Uh, you just call them by their initials of the chemicals, A, C, T, and G. And the precise sequence of this makes us who we are. It controls largely our appearance and the structure and function of our, of our bodies. And in order to try to get to grips with genetic diseases, um, Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, depression, or even diseases that are a mix of genetic and environmental uh, components, where we still need to know the genetic uh, basis of them. Right. Um, you can't do that without a map. And the map that scientists had in the early 1990s was uh, not useless, but it was pretty, pretty 
pretty low resolution, shall we say. So we yeah. needed a G Google map of the human genome. And this international project was launched. And uh, that was not the making of a thrilling sort of science detective book um, uh, until 1998, when suddenly a maverick scientist named Craig Venter, who, again, yeah. many of your viewers will know, yeah. decided, I'm going to launch a private effort because the, the the official project is going so slowly and it's crawling along, it needs to be shaken up. I'm going to launch a private effort. I've got hundreds of millions of dollars worth of funding. I've got new machines that I can use. Uh, and now suddenly we had a race on our hands because he was promising to, well, it wasn't quite clear whether he was going to make all of those data publicly available or whether somehow it was going to be used in a more for-profit commercial endeavor. Right. And we're talking about human DNA here. This is something that most scientists that you would interview would feel very, very strongly indeed. This had to be, this is our birthright. Mm. This had to be freely available for scientists to use and build upon. So suddenly the, the Human Genome Project became a pretty interesting dynamic race between a corporate effort on one end and this coalition, this consortium. It, it's sort of a shade of Star Wars, the Empire and the Alliance, you know, fighting for, for the good of, of freedom. No dark um, side, though. No dark side. Well, uh, it depends who you talk to. But in, in, <laughs> anyway, in the end, in 2000, summer of June of 2000, President Bill Clinton ah. uh, managed to kind of bring these two groups who were really feuding and it was getting increasingly mm. acrimonious, kind of brought them together. And the hope was this this roadmap, this genetic sequence roadmap really would be the the key step to solving and curing. Uh, a whole host of diseases now so that was the premise on which the book was built and I'm probably it's been a while since I opened it but, but you know at the end there would have been chapters promising almost sort of a holy grail of uh, medical breakthroughs and that didn't happen mm. uh, because biology is complicated medicine is complicated it, the secret is not always in our genes and just because we now had this rough sequence didn't mean we knew the way that every gene functioned and the dirty little secret about the human genome project is that that draft that we were celebrating with White House ceremonies and big uh, parties and glamour publications in the top journals, it was, a, again, still a very fuzzy, pixelated, low-res map. And the complete sequence of the human genome, if you did a poll of your viewers to say, well, when was that done? And you said 2001, 2003, 2008, 2022, the correct answer is 2022. It's only just been done in the last few months. Wow. Because Bunches of our DNA were very, very difficult for reasons we don't need to get into mm. right now, mm. uh, but just were difficult to, to sequence and sort of piece together. Anyway, so we do finally have um, uh, that map. And um, uh, so that was the story behind uh, Cracking the Genome. Beautiful. That's lovely. And and so you've been at it for the last couple of decades, which is incredible. And now you decide to publish Editing Humanity. And so... It's a, there's a vast difference, of course. I mean, you've moved on from, from that first project to this particular one. Um, and you, and this, the subheading is the CRISPR revolution and the new era of genome editing. So CRISPR being the core of what this book yeah. is really all about. So for, for those who don't fully understand CRISPR, and many of us do, we have a pretty good, uh, well-read audience. However, yeah. it's very important for you, for you to tell us uh, what sure. is CRISPR and so we can get our heads around it as, um, yeah. uh, as you wish. Absolutely. So CRISPR is really, we, the term wasn't even coined until 2001. That's how new this science and technology is. Although if you 
look deeper, the biology that CRISPR represents is actually millions, if not billions of years old, because at its core, CRISPR refers to uh, an immune system that bacteria have that allows them to detect and potentially destroy viruses that uh, would otherwise destroy them. So there is this arms race going on around us every day, every minute, every second, in which bacteria are desperately trying to fend off, just like we're trying to fend off uh, our own viral nemeses in terms of um, COVID and what have you. Um, uh, bacteria have the same problem, different viruses, but the same existential problem. So they figured out a way eons ago to do this. And that is simply to take little snippets, little snippets and segments of viral DNA sequences and stitch them into their own DNA, into a sort of a little kind of set of almost like manila folders. And this array of sequences is called the CRISPR uh, array. Right. So this is where bacteria store viral sequences and then they can sort of reactivate them to then use them as a sort of a sensory system to detect other viruses that generations later are trying to, to come in and destroy the virus, to destroy the host bacterium mm. cell. Mm. And the reason is not just to identify the virus, but to take this snippet, this DNA segment, uh, couple it with an enzyme that is the scissors uh, of CRISPR fame, and now with this DNA sequence telling the scissors where to go, what sequence to look for and latch onto, now you have a programmable uh, uh, system to actually cleave DNA. And that's how bacteria, one of the ways that bacteria are able to fend off viruses. And so the term CRISPR was coined in 2001. The link with viruses was identified by a small group of microbiologists in 2005. We go into all of this in the book. And it was in 2012 that the first demonstration was made to show that if we take this CRISPR system and we make a couple of tweaks, we can program these enzymes that are part of the CRISPR complex to target not just viral DNA, but potentially any DNA sequence. So the seeds right. of using CRISPR as a gene editing technology were sown or first demonstrated in 2012. And that work was led by two female scientists, Jennifer Doudna in Berkeley, California, and Emmanuel Charpentier, who's now in Berlin. And that was the work that led to them winning the Nobel Prize in 2020, literally one day after my book came out. So the timing wow. was was quite good. And the link with my previous books is actually uh, more simple than than I think you you may have suggested in your question. It's simply uh, the premise, the promise of the Human Genome Project was to provide information to help scientists uh, diagnose and treat and cure disease. Mm. And now with CRISPR, we have a tool that complements the full sequence that we've got now with the human genome, uh, because now we've got a tool that can actually go into cells and make those edits, make those repairs that give us the hope that we can finally cure diseases like hemophilia and sickle cell disease and cystic fibrosis and this enormous long list of thousands of genetic diseases, cancers, and more. So that's where much of the excitement around CRISPR comes from. Right, right. And is the, is the so we can understand for, for the non-scientists, 
So when you when you say CRISPR, I, I understand the the, the, back, the example of uh, the bacteria, yeah, uh, such an intelligent um, way of protecting itself, the self-preservation yeah. of the bacteria. Yeah. And um, if you were to take a, 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 a gene sequence, how yeah. does it work? So is it is it you know the the sort of from when you the old chemistry classes you take the the molecules in a little um, uh, dish. And then you've and, and you you know you're resequencing with some robotic arms. How how does it work? How, I mean, uh, you know, you, the, the, one of the beauties of CRISPR is you don't. And one of the reasons it has swept the world. <clears throat> there are researchers all around the world, not just in universities and biotech companies, right? But university, uh, but even in high school labs. I mean, it's a very relatively simple technique to get to work. Right. Uh, you don't need fancy equipment. Uh, to do a basic, you know, rudimentary CRISPR experiment. I'm currently writing the introduction for a new book on CRISPR in the classroom with a whole bunch of authors that will provide mm. a guide for young scientists to get them uh, introduced to uh, to CRISPR. So um, when we say we want to CRISPR uh, a patient or CRISPR uh, a, a gene, all we're really talking about is an enzyme uh, a, that, that cuts... DNA mm -hmm. and a little piece of a, what we call a guide RNA, which is the sequence that we're trying to target. And so this complex, this ribonuclear protein complex in the jargon, mm -hmm. uh, is able to now go into in a human cell, the cell nucleus, mm -hmm. where the DNA is stored mm -hmm. and scan it almost like a sort of a, 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 a drone doing surveillance. But with this RNA, it kind of will land in multiple places and test to see if it's found the right sequence. And almost miraculously, given how tightly wound and compact and how huge this ocean of DNA is in the, in the human cell or mammalian cell compared to a tiny little bacterial cell where this system evolved, um, this system actually works. And, and um, so we're able to go in, even in the ocean of a human DNA, which has 6 billion letters of, of these ACs, Ts and Gs, CRISPR is able to work. That wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion when, the, when this breakthrough paper was published in 2012, but here we are. So um, really all you have to figure out is how to deliver this complex of this enzyme and the guide RNA that you've programmed, you have with human hands designed, maybe with a bit of computational help, but you've designed the sequence to match the gene or the region nearby a gene that you're trying to cut. And then once you've cut it, several things can happen. You can either bring along or, or supply a sort of a, a bit of masking tape, a, a, the, the correct sequence that you would like to stitch into the DNA, mm -hmm. or you can, cut it in such a way that you're deliberately trying to um, uh, kind of mess up the DNA just in that tiny little region mm. to block the function of a gene or block a binding site, which may be in, a, in the context of a particular disease, all that you need to do. So mm. that's the original, in a nutshell, CRISPR uh, technology that won the Nobel Prize uh, two years ago. But one of the amazing things about this field is that that is almost you know, old school technology now, because new flavors of CRISPR and new flavors of gene editing are coming along all the time, being published in uh, top journals. And um, so there are now uh, new types of gene editing that 
still have some central components of the CRISPR system that won the Nobel Prize, but now we're doing different types of chemistry on the surface of the DNA that can make more subtle, more precise changes to the DNA sequence. And in some cases are literally only uh, switching out one, the one specific uh, base or letter of DNA that you wish to repair, leaving everything else intact. Mm. And if that can work without cutting the DNA, without potentially activating the cell's natural DNA repair processes um, and can be done in a controlled fashion, that is a very promising um, way. There's a new company that's uh, called Prime Medicine in the Boston mm -hmm. area, which mm -hmm. has just declared it's going public. Right. Uh, uh, this week that we're recording this interview, um, their technology, Prime Editing, developed only three years ago, can, in principle, engineer any DNA base. If, if you tell me I've got an A and I need to switch it to a C or a G and I need to switch it back to a T, Prime Editing is a technology that, in principle, can affect all of those types of changes. So the toolbox, as people like to call it, is getting bigger and more sophisticated every week, every month. So, um, you know, this is not a technology that's going to grow stale. On the contrary, it's people mm. getting more and more excited if that's possible as mm. these new tools come online. Mm. It reminds me of, that's fascinating. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, I'm a technologist, so it reminds me of this concept of complex code into what we call low code, no code. And over the, over the years, it's taken a long time to get to this point where actually drag and drop uh, is a central part of very complex software development. So you mm -hmm. and I could, without being computer scientists, could go out there with drag drop uh, predefined widgets and actually build a, a kick-ass website or mm -hmm. a whatever software we decide to build. It feels like there's, a, if it's not happened now yet, so I don't think it's happened yet, it feels like this could be the future at some point, at some stage, where as long as it's in the right hands, which we'll get to in a second, you could do some good ethical work here and uh, could have a material impact on the future of humanity you know, in a very positive way. Abs absolutely. I mean, I think, obviously, I've painted a very rosy picture so far about how this technology can bring about cures for many genetic diseases. So I think to set, to sort of set the foundation for where our discussion could go, it's important to say, what is, so what is the best case scenario? So right now, the best case scenario is what's been happening in a trial uh, in America and Europe uh, on sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is a terrible disease affecting, for the most part, people of African descent, so mostly African-Americans in the United States. Uh, it's caused by a single mutation of one letter of the genetic code but it messes up uh, the hemoglobin, the molecule that transports oxygen around the bodies. It warps the shape of the blood cells. And um, the reason it's so common for a deadly genetic disease uh, that until recently you would not have children if you were a patient with sickle cell disease because of the huge number of complications um, that arise from not having a functioning blood supply. Right. Um, the uh, the um, the impact has been has been tremendous. Sickle cell carriers have an advantage against malaria, so they've been selected for over thousands of years. So the the gene, instead of dying out, in a way almost increases in frequency. So three years ago, a clinical trial started using CRISPR 
not to re make that precision repair of that single letter because uh, CRISPR was a bit more of a blunt scissors, to, wasn't quite able to do that. But scientists over years before that figured out a way to uh, uh, compensate for the mutation right. by switching back on a gene called fetal globin, which we all express when, uh, during pregnancy, when we're, when we're the feet, when we're a fetus in the womb, um, but shortly after we're born, this fetal globin is shut down, and a different type of globin, the globin that carries the sickle cell mutation, is switched on. Scientists have known for some time that if they could figure out a way to switch the fetal globin back on, this would mask and compensate for the bad, uh, the faulty globin that's carrying the mutation. So this has worked beautifully in now about 80 patients that have been reported so far, one of whom has become a minor celebrity here in the US. Victoria Gray has been interviewed and profiled on a long running series on National Public Radio. You can find those interviews on, on the NPR's website. Her name is Victoria Gray. She's from Mississippi. Right. Um, it's, a, it's not a procedure for the faint of heart. It involves chemotherapy and long hospital stays. This, her bone marrow cells or stem cells are treated uh, in a dish, out, take, removed from her body, then treated, and then re-implanted after she and other patients have had chemotherapy to evacuate their bone marrow. But uh, So you had to do that for the, for the re-implanted cells to kind of Per, take take purchase and, and and take hold and start to grow and, and differentiate but that has worked beautifully so she as and i believe this the same scenario for pretty much every patient in this ongoing trial which is run by crispr therapeutics and vertex pharmaceuticals right. uh, has had no more hospitalizations no more pain crises um so essentially essentially a cure this is still in clinical trials it's not mm. yet approved one of the caveats is going to be when this is approved, what are the companies who've developed this therapy? How are they going to get a return on their investment? How are they going to be reimbursed for the millions of dollars that they've invested in this research? Mm -hmm. So almost certainly they're going to set a staggering price, which they will justify economically. Mm -hmm. But I would suspect this is going to be upwards of $2 million. And wow. that doesn't even include the, the cost for staying in the hospital for, for all those weeks for the procedure. So they will argue and they will justify it by saying um, the only way we can uh, develop improved therapies beyond this is to make, make a return on our investment that has been going on for, for many, many years. Um, but you also have to weigh the cost of this one-time therapy, which, appear, which is important to say that it should be a one-time therapy if it works properly, mm -hmm. compared to the lifetime of medications and hospitalizations mm -hmm. Uh, that the patient would otherwise uh, have to endure mm. if they did not have this therapy. So mm. each patient and their families and their doctors will have to sort of weigh these sort of pros and cons. It, it's um, it's not a, not going to be a trivial decision, and this won't be the last word in treating sickle cell. But that's the so far the leading example. Other examples equally promising have been published in some of the top medical journals. Um, and the hope is from no less an authority than Jennifer Downer, who we interviewed on a program uh, run by our magazine, Genetic Engineering News, just last week, said that in the years to come, she firmly believes that a therapy, a gene editing therapy will be developed for sickle cell and similar diseases in which the patient will simply receive an injection of the CRISPR complex 
that will uh, that will 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 work without having to undergo all of this sort of very aggressive um, chemo and bone marrow transplantation. Mm. Um, when that will happen, she declines to put a date on it. It's going to be some years away, but at least we've got the beginnings mm. of. We we should not undersell how important this early progress has been because, as I say, the first CRISPR paper, the Nobel Prize winning paper, that was just 10 years ago uh, Mm. this summer. So in one decade to go from here's a proof of principle that looks quite interesting to we've got 80 patients who are walking around with pretty much free of symptoms Mm. with with this fame, arguably the most famous genetic mutation in the world, sickle cell disease. I don't think anybody, even even Doudner, would have uh, predicted something would move that fast. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions for you on yeah. that, uh, because you got me thinking. So the first question was related to uh, the pragmatic nature of actually, let's call it some level of uh, a level playing field yeah. in terms of affordability. So yeah. the two million price tag today is, of course, ludicrous. And, uh, you know, I know a little bit about the US healthcare system and then a lot about the NHS in the UK, the equivalent, which is public funded. The, uh, the issue with this, of course, is a, d- a discovery is fascinating from a scientific standpoint. And then it's not as exciting when the, the patient or the one who's unwell cannot actually use it for, um, uh, you know, for, for, for reasons related to affordability or the insurance company is not willing to pay for it or the NHS says, well, it's way too expensive, you know, yep. sorry, uh, but we've got to think of some other alternative, which is yep. a quarter of the price or, you know, uh, more available. And we know this is a, a major problem in the in the pharma drug industry. I mean, we won't yep. discuss that today, but we are all aware of, um, you know, whilst there are good things going on in this industry, there's some very naughty things happening in this industry too. So uh, what's your view on, on um, you know, if I look at it from the point of view of the patient and a patient hears this, you know, and they say, wow, you know, Kevin, this is amazing, but not so amazing because you're in effect saying, you know, dangling a carrot and you're saying, well, not for you, buddy. Um, And so, and I understand that we are, we have to be patient and innovations will happen and different, you know, like in technology, we have Moore's law where things get cheaper every few years and smaller and smaller and cheaper. And that's what we can afford technology that has a knock on effect on biotech as well. So do you, if I was to make you the uh, the policy head of whether it's the UK, US or whatever, or the European Union or whatever it may be, yeah. you, you had a, um, you know, a magic wand opportunity. What would you really do to see this through? Because innovation and invention without implementation is um, quite uh, disappointing and quite distressing, almost yeah. useless. Extent. Well, I think, I think I'm glad you said that at the end because... Um, advocates of the biotech and pharma industry would say, you know, you can complain about the pricing all you want, but without us, what the hell are you going to do? Who mm-hmm. else is going to develop these drugs? Occasionally, you might find an academic group that is able to develop a, a therapy and with government funding or philanthropic funding might be able to find a way to distribute it. But we need this industry. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing is, um, these pricing issues are not solely about gene therapy or gene editing. A case in point uh, in the UK, just in the last few years, was from uh, the availability of brand new cystic fibrosis drugs tailored to patients with specific mutations. Um, these are drug, brilliant drugs, mm-hmm. very effective drugs developed by Vertex, a, a biotech company in the Boston area. 
Um, but they held out. They wanted uh, to charge um, a very high price, a very steep price, which they felt they had earned. And again, it goes back to uh, here's the price of a supply of our drug versus all of the other costs that the patient will um, will the lifetime uh, the lifetime usage right, exactly of alternative exactly. yeah and I remember the NHS initially uh, uh, said whoa you're, you're you're holding us to ransom we simply can't afford the price that you're charging us finally uh, I believe an agreement was made and those drugs are now I think largely available mm-hmm. um, so you know uh, talking talking to an NHS uh, NHS expert would be a good a good uh, way to pursue to pursue that. Um, you know, the irony is that these uh, this gene editing trial that we've just been talking about for sickle cell, uh, I was talking to an expert uh, on the subject the other day, and he said, you know, we're, we're excited. I mean, I'm a hematologist. We're excited for this field. We're excited to see where these these this cool science can go. But the irony is there is a drug, a generic drug called hydroxyurea, that as a hematologist I can sell you. It helps virtually every patient that we administer it to, we prescribe it for. Uh, and yet in the United States, fewer than half of sickle cell patients are on this drug. It is, it is a scandal that no one talks about except for people in that field. This is a drug that is pennies on the dollar of a, a high price, new trendy gene editing therapy, it's not a cure, but it will help alleviate many of the symptoms and difficulties that a sickle cell patient might experience. And yet of too many patients, even in in America, uh, aren't on this simple drug. And there are other, just because we're sort of, and I'm as a CRISPR aficionado, I'm sort of really excited about talking about these gene editing therapies. There are other uh, drugs, other approaches that are being taken. There's been a little kind of bidding war in sickle cell in the last few months about these biotech companies now getting swallowed up by big pharma who see, wow, mm-hmm. we're finally in a position to really uh, capitalize and, and help this patient community. 100,000 in the US, that's not that's not a rare disease. That's a pretty significant number of patients. So uh, a company called Global Blood Therapeutics just got bought by Pfizer for $5 billion and change Mm -hmm. um, because they have one small molecule. They have others in the pipeline, but right now just one molecule that's been approved that potentially helps a little bit uh, with with sickle cell patients. So um, the good news is that gene editing is sort of get captures a lot of the headlines because the science is so undeniably cool, but there are other things happening. How, the challenge, even once this, these first therapies are approved, is um, how do we get the balance right between satisfying the shareholders of these biotech companies and pharma companies versus the needs of the patients? Obviously, the companies are going to offer all kinds of waivers and schemes to try. They're not, not going to want headlines saying, well, you know, um, Betty in Louisiana can't afford this drug, which you've been dangling and promising. Mm. So how they're going to get around that remains to be seen. Mm, got it. And so, um, and so, if you had a magic wand and you were given the ability to to do whatever you needed to to create a level um, playing field, what would you do? Yeah, I don't have. You know, I'm going to stay in my lane, Al. I'm sorry to. I don't. I don't really know what the answer is. As I said, we need the innovation. There's now about two dozen biotech companies commercializing CRISPR for infectious disease, cancer. Uh, every biotech company looking at to treat human disease will have a different group of um, diseases 
Yeah. There's a new company I mentioned, Prime Editing, um, has just sort of opened its, um, uh, kind of unveiled the diseases that it's going after. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a who's who of genetic diseases, cystic fibrosis, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Fragile X, the most common genetic form of mental retardation, Huntington's disease, the notorious uh, neurological uh, fatal disorder, um, and the list goes on. It's as if they went through and picked the most famous, notorious genetic diseases, as if to say, no matter how famous the disease or what the specific type of mutation is, it doesn't matter if it's a point mutation or an expansion of a genetic sequence that's gone rogue or a deletion in the middle of a critical gene, our technology in principle can tackle all of these, um, all of these items. Yeah. So they're going after some, some very big diseases. Other companies are specializing and focusing on a smaller basket of mm. diseases. And um, you know, hopefully they will weather the current economic storm that is sort of really putting pressure on the biotech um, vertical and, and other sectors as well. And most, if not all, will be able to uh, survive this sort of current economic stagnation that we're going through and uh, be able to then ramp up and, and really yeah. move into the clinic and uh, and deliver successful treatments for patients. Mm, understood. So fine. Um, thanks for that response. You, you, you're definitely in your lane. I won't push you too hard. It is great <laughs> talk, though. Um, and so I, I want to move, move to another another. Uh, pathway now, which relates to, you know, these are obvious questions. When you're able to play around with an, with a, an edit, a sequence of a, ge a genome uh, or a, a gene sequence, can you, can you edit by copying and pasting and adding new, or do you just move things around? Uh, you can in principle. So this has not yet been attempted in patients, right. but it will be in the next few years. There are companies, so as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of a, a CRISPR toolbox. There are more and more enzymes, more and more tools are being discovered, some right. from nature. Right. Uh, others are just being engineered and sort of doing artificial evolution in the lab. Um, and so scientists are not, now that they figured out here is a simple, effective way to uh, cut and paste DNA. Mm. They're not going to be content with just you know fixing a, a gene or a, a base a letter of DNA here or there. Mm. Um, so the toolbox is going to expand, and there are other companies that are developing systems to potentially insert much larger stretches of DNA. And we'd have to think carefully about okay, so how what to what purpose to what end are we trying mm. to do that um uh but uh yeah so that that is not in any way science fiction that that is that is certainly in the preclinical phase at the moment understood and so if you're able to do that i guess then let's talk about use cases uh, one is related to health and, and sickle cell is a great is a great example and then i can imagine that other diseases and illnesses like cancer and, and various others eventually will be um you know part of the portfolio we'll be able to yes yeah. i mean there's there's diseases. literally thousands of genetic diseases and i i can't say with only two dozen companies there's no way that we could say every there's a program looking at every single genetic disease that has been catalogued over the last few decades but that list is growing mm. uh there are definitely efforts underway in in cancer as well mm. but i think an important uh points to just address and make crystal clear for, for the audience is that these are what scientists call somatic 
gene therapy. In other words, we're injecting the CRISPR into the cells of a child or an adult to hopefully fix what's gone wrong in the muscle or the liver or the bloodstream or what have you. But we're not uh, we're not doing this in such a way that they can pass on this edit. This is just to help the patient themselves. And this is in deep contrast to the uh, notorious experiments that were conducted in China a few years ago in 2018, in which a scientist was now literally doing CRISP, performing CRISPR on a human embryo. So if a human embryo at the one, two or four cell stage um, has an edit made, then that edit is obviously by definition going to double with the rest of the cells of the growing embryo. And then once uh, that child is born, nine-ish months later, in principle, those edits will now populate every cell of the newborn baby, including the sperm or egg cells as they develop. So now you have a genetic change that can literally pass on through generations. You have mm -hmm. now dipped your toe and completely polluted the gene pool. Mm. Uh, and that is why uh, an ethicist can agree to disagree about whether that is an absolute red line that should never be crossed or whether mm -hmm. there may be situations where that could make a prudent sense. We can get into that if you wish. Uh, but that that's why this these experiments cause such a storm. And um, uh, I spent several chapters revealing how the, uh, I wasn't the, the journalist who broke that, brilliant journalist at MIT Technology Review, uh, Antonio Regalado, broke that story in 2018. Um, but I do kind of uh, reveal a little bit about how he kind of figured out, I got on the hunt of that particular episode. Um, the scientist in question was subsequently sentenced to three years in jail. He got out a little bit early, uh, earlier this year, and um, recently popped up in a news release in China saying that he was now moving, uh, I believe, to Beijing and looking to continue to make a contribution in science for his, uh, for his country. Kevin, you've raised some really important points, and I think we've covered really good grounds today. As we now navigate to the next part, which is a very important part, which relates to the, the earlier designer baby concept, talk us through this whole area of ethics, because of course this could go way out of control. And um, there's a little bit of concern you know, amongst us all around those who have the resources and the money and the access to be able to avail right. of uh, genome editing versus those who don't, of course. Right. And we talked about the affordability issue. So, so just, add some color to where your head is at when it comes to ethics and so, how, how this could be <clears throat> mass adopted. Sure. So yeah. let's, first of all, be very clear to distinguish the kinds of gene editing that we've been talking about in the clinic for sickle cell and liver diseases and forms of muscular dystrophy and a growing number of genetic disorders, including cancers, yeah. that will be increasingly under the microscope in the clinic, uh, and hopefully more and more of those gene editing therapies will be approved and available. They'll come with a very high price tag, which we can talk more about in a second. Yeah. But there's nothing controversial medically or ethically about this. This is simply state-of-the-art medicine mm -hmm. for individuals with devastating, potentially uh, life-threatening uh, illnesses. Right. 
the ethical quandary comes when we talk about potentially tweaking the genes or the DNA in a human embryo, playing God, almost literally, to change the complexion of genes at birth. Mm. Uh, th those DNA changes will be reflected in every cell in the in the baby of, of, of uh, and those changes could also be passed on to future generations. So this is the stuff of science fiction nightmares, uh, and, uh, to, you know, and is something we need to watch very carefully. One of the good things that has emerged from the saga of He Jiankui and the CRISPR babies that we've been talking about right. um, in China from four, from about 2018 is there has been, as you would expect, it has triggered an awful lot of debate among uh, leading scientists, ethicists, physicians, and other constituencies about how this technology should be regulated going forward. Should there be a blanket moratorium? How would you enforce that? Or is there a path that in which we think this technology could be applied ethically and sensibly in certain situations. So uh, very briefly, uh, a major panel organized by the National Academy of Sciences met uh, uh, and issued a report about two years ago now. Right, right. And aired uh, cautiously towards the latter view that I just, of those two choices I just gave. They concluded after a year of deliberation and many interviews uh, with leading experts that in some cases, gene editing of human embryos could be permitted those situations would include instances where two patients with a recessive disease, so they carry two copies of the mutant gene, whether it be for sickle cell disease mm. or cystic fibrosis, perhaps, if they wanted to have a biologically healthy child, there is no way, no other form of in vitro fertilization that would allow them to select an embryo that didn't have that genetic disease because this is a recessive disease and they'd have no healthy versions of the particular gene in question to pass on to their children. This is where gene editing could come in. We could edit one or both copies of those genes such that they could have a biological child with, without the genetic disease that afflicted the parents. The chances of two sickle cell um, patients, even though in parts of Africa and Asia, this is a very common disease, um, choosing to uh, couple and want to have a biological child. I mean, the, the numbers, uh, you do the math and the numbers aren't, don't get, don't get very high. Mm. Um, uh, and this technology is not ready to offer them for that particular application, but it could be one day. And all the reports said is that let's keep our options open. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater, right. literally. Right. Uh, and um, let's keep, let's keep, an, let's not just have a knee jerk, we didn't like the way the first scientist went about doing uh, gene editing so we in 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 embryos so we should never allow that to proceed for the rest of human mm. humans existence on planet earth um so that's that's the considered view however we already know from the immediate aftermath of the crispr babies scandal that there were clinics in the one clinic i shouldn't mm. exaggerate one clinic that we know of in the middle east that was emailing the Chinese scientists at the heart of that controversy to say, could you pass along? Could you teach us your methods? Mm. Uh, because we want to offer CRISPR genome editing for our clients. Mm. Uh, I don't know the name of the clinic, but it was in Dubai. We, mm. I've seen the email. Um, we also know that there's a, a leading geneticist in Moscow uh, who several years ago was very keen on 
on following along the same lines uh, of her Jankui, but applying it to Russian couples who suffer hereditary forms of deafness. He wanted to offer them a route to having a hearing-enabled child. Uh, back, back then, in the summer of 2019, the Russian authorities, health authorities, said, uh, no, Dr. Rebrikov, we're timeouts, we're not, we're not going to grant you permission to go ahead and do this. But as far as I know, he's still itching to do it. Mm. And if they had a change of policy, this could get greenlit by the Russian authorities, who may be in a frame of mind where they're not particularly bothered by what the rest of the world thinks of their medical ethics. So um, I think, to cut a long story short, I think we're going to see some other test cases uh, emerge in the coming years, uh, whether it's a, an offshore CRISPR clinic purely for profit, or whether it's a, a physician who thinks he's doing something in the best interests of his mm. patients, of, of couples who've come to him for his services. Um, I think this is going to flare up again, and then we're going to have to have these debates uh, continue. Mm. And is this, um, just help me understand, is the uh, commercialization of this, um, is, is that pretty straightforward at this point? Is it open source? Uh, or oh, Chris, is, yes, you, Chris, well, yeah. they're, they're, uh, CRISPR is pretty much um, available to anybody who wants to, to, to uh, attempt it. And um, of course, there's still a, a big patent uh, uh, battle going on for the original form of CRISPR. Um, so there may be some licensing issues, but I don't think those barriers would be terribly high if you were um, uh, if you wanted to pursue it. Now, it may be that the owners, once that patent is is finalized and and all appeals have have uh, ended, it may be that the owner of the patent may choose to prevent uh, any uh, germline application uh, of CRISPR-Cas9 editing in human embryos. Um, I, that's an interesting uh, line we should follow. For the more traditional conventional gene therapies, we expect, just to switch back to that topic for a second, we expect to see, I expect to see the first of these being approved in 2023 in the US and Europe should follow soon thereafter. I think sickle cell disease will be the first um, such application. And that's fantastic news. There've been 80 patients reportedly essentially cured of sickle cell disease in this one of these early clinical trials. So that's amazingly positive news. The, the grim news is gonna come when this, this um, gene editing CRISPR therapy gets priced by the companies that have done all the done most of the research to get to get us to this point, because I suspect they're going to want to charge something in the neighborhood of two to three million dollars. That seems to be the window yeah. with which state of the art gene therapies are being priced. And the companies are going to say we need to charge that a because we've got to recoup all of our investment, the hundreds of millions of dollars it takes to get a, a drug approved. B, uh, we're going to need to charge that money because we've got to invest in in more further improved uh, gene therapies for um, for uh, for this and other indications. And third, even though two to three million dollars might sound like a lot of money, it's still a bargain compared to the lifetime cumulative cost that right. a patient or their insurance or their health care systems in the case of countries like the UK, yeah. um, we're still offering a bargain because this is a one and done treatment. And after which there should be, hopefully, fingers crossed, no more hospitalizations, no more pain crises. The patients should be free and clear of any complications. Mm. And yes, so two to $3 million for one quick uh, treatment is a, a huge amount of money. But if you compare it to the alternative, 
you'll see that it is still relatively cost efficient. Mm. When you think about uh, what's your view on the pharmaceuticals, their business model, market share goals, and the the you know the drive for profitability. It's the same. It's the same. Yes, in that sense. So gene editing is really no different than any cutting edge pharmaceutical business. So one of the companies, here's a good example, one of the companies involved in Chris, the early first wave of CRISPR gene editing therapies is Vertex Pharmaceuticals yeah. in Boston. Yeah. A very successful uh, company that really made its name in large part by developing customized drugs for cystic fibrosis tailored to specific mutations in CF patients. Naturally, when those drugs were approved, by the by the uh, uh, regulatory bodies, they wanted to charge hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, per course of drug, um, because for, for, for the arguments I've just made mm. in the CRISPR context, <laughs> when they went to the UK to, to to strike a contract with the National Health Service, um, they were at an impasse because the NHS just balked at the initial price that Vertex wanted to set for these drugs. These are small molecule drugs. They're nothing to do with gene editing or CRISPR. So um, the, the, the contrasting motivations uh, of appeasing your shareholders and investors versus doing the right thing for the patients, this is a, this is a true capitalistic tension that sadly is going rings well it rings through all of pharma and biotech uh we see it also in the us with the with the extraordinary monopolization and price hikes attached to generic drugs mm. like insulin and uh, mm. epipens um mm. it's shameful what's going on mm. um so i i've sadly i think crispr is going to be subject to some of the same tensions when these therapies really start to get approved in in significant numbers mm. so yeah and that's kind of disappointing but i hear you and yeah. i think that's um it, it maybe it's the reality and people can make that change happen over time who knows yeah protests on the streets. I mean, the situation in the UK right now, I don't know if you're following it, is rather interesting. So we'll see what happens. Um, another couple of things around this is um, the, 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 the sort of form factor. What do you what do you believe is going to be the sort of dominant form factor? Is it pill format? Is it infusion injection? Is it a combination of the two? Right now, Right now, yeah, pill format is a long way away. Um, so let's just put that to one side. Uh, right now, uh, the, the, these early therapies can be administered in one of two ways, and we call them either ex vivo or in vivo. Right. So the sickle cell therapy is an ex vivo therapy where the cells that are being treated, that are being edited, um, are taken outside the body, treated, the, the CRISPR machinery is delivered to the cell nucleus in, in right. these stem cells, and then those edited stem cells are reinfused into the body where we hope they find that find their home and, and uh, you know, start start doing what we want them, what we've programmed them to do. Mm. Um, that's very expensive. And in cases of ex vivo therapy, where you have to then do a form of chemotherapy to uh, help with the reinfusion process, uh, very expensive not trivial, potentially dangerous to the patient. So it's mm. a huge undertaking all around. Mm. Uh, when the second clinical trial uh, results were first uh, published in 2021 uh, by a Boston company, Boston-based company called Intellia Therapeutics, mm. a lot of the excitement wasn't just that the patients were doing well, but it had a rare, these were patients with a rare liver disease, 
that you or I have not heard of before. But the, the one of the big headlines was this was an, a proof of principle for in vivo delivery, where the researchers were giving the patients the CRISPR uh, machinery in a, a lipid sort of a nanoparticle mm. that naturally finds its way to the liver. But it was simply a, a blood an injection into the into the bloodstream so this is sort of a hope and i think uh, we we did a uh, an interview with jennifer dowden of the nobel laureate quite recently for one of our live events where she said she hoped and believed that even the sickle cell programs would eventually become uh, part of this in vivo delivery uh, uh, program which would be much safer for the patients mm. and much cheaper to administer but mm. she was a little hesitant on actually defining a date where that could happen. So, because a lot more research is needed. Yeah. Um, whether eventually CRISPR could be given in an, in an oral form, I've really not heard too many projections about that, but of course that would be a, a holy grail for the field. Mm. And is there, a, when, we, when we had COVID around, of course, with the vaccinations, cold storage and temperatures became a, a hot topic. Is that something to consider when you think about the, the first few um, you know. I think that was more of an issue for these RNA vaccines, yeah. and I don't believe that cold storage is going to be an <clears> issue. So I think that's an important, a good question to ask. Um, but so far, I've not I've not heard that that is an issue as far as administering CRISPR. Okay, got it. Brilliant. So we'll switch gears before we close off yeah. to um, food and sustainability of food, yeah. because I recall you mentioning CRISPR's multiple, multivaried applications and use cases. So yeah. talk us through. Um, what what that means in terms yeah. of food supply chain? Well, I think all the big uh, agricultural companies are yeah. developing either in-house or with partners major programs for genome editing of crops uh, and foods. Mm. Um, because quite simply, unless we engineer our plants to become more robust to withstand drought, heat, pests, parasites, you name it, um, our food supply is going to, it's already under threat and it's going mm -hmm. to become increasingly under threat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we simply, if, if, you know, I, I think we're all in favor of natural organic farming and it all sounds wonderful, but unfortunately um, evolution has a way of, you know, de developing pests and critters and bacteria and viruses mm -hmm. that would love nothing more than to absolutely wipe out your favorite crop, whether it be cereals or fruits or rice or anything else that you care to name that different people around the planet um, depend on. So CRISPR is going to become, and it's already emerging as a very important tool because despite all, all of the fuss over the last 25 years about genetically modified plants has, I think it's A, I think it's been misguided. I want to be clear about that, but B, one can understand from the layperson's perspective because it sounds it does sound a little weird you're you're taking mm. a foreign gene from a beetle or an insect and putting it into my plants i don't like the sound of that mm. it's not terribly it's not their opposition isn't much more sophisticated than that but if we could avoid that then we would like to do that and the beauty of crispr is that you do avoid that you're making as we've discussed earlier on in this program mm. the, the most subtle stealthy changes to the dna sequence often reverting a gene to a naturally occurring version of the gene that can be found in, in some other species mm. um, to, uh, to better defend the plant and, and give it some better resistance against whatever, whatever it's under, under threat. Mm. Nothing is left behind. There's no foreign genes inserted 
Um, and so I, this, this is incredibly um, important. We're seeing reports of your know, oranges and bananas and uh, you name the crop, there's, they're, they're, it is under threat. So uh, if we can increase the survivability or the nutrition value of staples, uh, then I think, I personally think we, we need to use all of our human ingenuity and, and technology to do it. CRISPR is completely safe mm. in this context. Um, there should be really no concerns, but I think that is in a way, almost the bigger challenge. And there, there are technical challenges because plant genomes are much more complex right. than human genomes. So right. technically, we so just do have a fair bit of work to do to just make the precise engineered edit that they want to make. But the bigger challenge, I suggest, is actually convincing the public that this is safe. This has this is in the uh, the best. Uh, this is for the best of the of the consumer. Uh, and just because some of these are being developed by big corporations like Syngenta and Corteva and Bayer, mm. um, big multinational convention, uh, ag bio companies that may not have like many pharma companies don't have the cleanest track record. They've mm. been they've been kickbacks and other things that have dragged them into court. Um, but they this is not about making money. This is about ensuring that we have enough foods uh, to live on mm. and um but i can imagine that in africa in particular there are going to be countries and regimes that are very suspicious even before they begin to understand the technology the fact that it's being presented to them by mm. by a, a a major uh agricultural uh, uh biotech company, biotech company um, yeah. so there's going to be a lot of public education and persuasion that's going to need to be done and mm. i'm not i'm not uh well I, I i wish i was more optimistic mm. is it fair to say if some of those issues were tackled the education you know getting mass uh mass um adoption at a, at a consumer level working to some extent yeah and it, it's going to be easier to do this than it is going to be to um uh, to, to to you know address the the previous challenge that we had so with the food supply I guess it's not to do with babies and it's not to do with embryos. Right. And, uh, if, if you can convince someone and you can educate them on the fact that, well, actually, this is way better than what Monsanto was doing with uh, crops yes. earlier on. Well, I think, yes, I think that's, I, I mean, I, for me, what convinced me is, you know, what, what once I, once I saw a picture of a, a lung that had been exposed to cigarette smoke, yeah. from a lung cancer patient you know I, I was in no mind to pick up cigarettes after that yeah. Yeah, I found that incredibly persuasive um interesting that in the you know in the whole kind of COVID pandemic we on our tv screens we were really spared yeah seeing the worst because hospitals you know in, at least in America we you know valued their privacy and so things were done very very with 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 tight regulation if we had seen more transparently what was going on perhaps more people would have taken the pandemic you know really would have uh, followed the, and continued to heed the warnings mm. about the pandemic um so if you see a before and after photo of a of a plant of cotton or something that's been untreated versus one that has benefited because it that those plants have been CRISPR gene edited um, and you see the difference in health and vitality and growth in the second versus the first then perhaps you've got a you've got a, a hope of uh, convincing um the, the 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 regulators and and, and governments that uh, this is the this is the only prudent way forward
Mm. When could it happen? Just well, this is this is already in research, and I think okay. we're already starting to see some. Chris, there's already a CRISPR edited tomato on sale in okay. um, Japan. Right. Um, it's got more nominally um, enhanced nutrition, so I don't really think it's the most sort of um, uh, striking um, example. You know, I'm reasonably happy with the nutritional value of a normal tomato, so I'm not necessarily going to rush out and pick the one that. Um, that says it's got you know extra vitamin A or whatever the the the, the nutrition is, but you know, we have to start somewhere. And if if certain countries are now finding a pipeline and a and a, a way to get crisper edited fruits and vegetables onto store market shelves, I think that's again I take great encouragement from that. Okay, wonderful, good. So we're looking forward to an augmented food food supply yeah. chain, and um, maybe the world will accept this versus you know. Yeah, uh, the alternative. It'll, it'll take some time, but I hope so. Yeah, uh, fingers crossed. So uh, as we close off, then I think um, it's it's been amazing talking to you, Kevin. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, yeah. uh, it's it's been a learning experience for for me certainly and for our audience, no doubt. I'm sure they'll be desperate. Many of them will be desperate to try and uh, grab hold of your book, uh, Editing Humanity, if they haven't yet, or even even the one you wrote 20 years ago. Uh, and the one before then, yeah. <laughs> uh, during that time, you talked about the $1,000 genome, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is brilliant. Now, your brain is ticking. You're at a really interesting inflection point with the technology of CRISPR. And it's all happening now, of course, based on this conversation. There's a lot more to, to happen. What's your next book on then? Uh, the next project is to write, uh, which, which has emerged from uh, uh, Editing Humanity, is to write the story of sickle cell disease. Uh, it's a disease I learned about in school. Every, every student learns about sickle cell disease. It's a historic uh, disease for, for many reasons. It's known as the first molecular disease. Uh, someone I was interviewing recently in the CRISPR space described it, and I love this, as the most famous genetic mutation on earth which oh. I believe it is, mm. um, but uh, yet we've barely, we, we scandalously really, we haven't been able to offer a, a meaningful treatment, particularly for the millions who are affected in Africa mm. and across Asia. So from a historical and societal perspective, it's a fascinating story. It hasn't really been told for, for a, a broad audience. So I'm gonna to try to weave all of these elements together, talk to the companies that are driving the, these amazing clinical trials, hopefully get to meet some of the patients that are involved and uh, um, uh, yeah, so look for that in about three years' time. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we'll have you back on the show. Oh, I would we'll love be, that. Thank we'll you. be in a different phase. I'll be older yeah. and, uh, and <laughs> wiser about CRISPR. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about this when I started the show with you. I have uh, a personal story around my health condition as well. Yeah. So this is very important. And I'll be yeah. watching this. And, of course, we'll be in touch with you. For the audience, if they do want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Have you got a website, LinkedIn, email? What, what are you willing to share? I, 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 I'm on LinkedIn. And any Google search will, yeah. will find me. Uh, my, my email, happy to talk to people, is yeah. daviskev at gmail.com. D-A-V-I-E-S-K-E-V yeah. Yeah. at gmail.com. And uh, appreciate you having me on the show. It's been yeah, it, it's been absolutely amazing. And so before you leave, I, I, my yeah. final thirty-second request. Yeah, how's this experience been for you? Please give us some feedback uh, for Straight Talk for myself. It's really important for us to have a testimonial because, of course, we're constantly looking for amazing 
personalities like you. Many of them are great, you know, yeah. authors, uh, and they need to know that you found it valuable, so we can we can go do a good job of adoption as well. So please, just tw- fifteen or twenty seconds. How has it been for oh. you? Well, th- thanks for having me on. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's always a pleasure to talk with a, an informed host, uh, and we've touched on a huge number of really provocative subjects. Um, even if I didn't have all the answers, it's it's th- these these programs are great. So thank you again. This has been brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, and we will have you back, Kevin. Um, thanks a lot, Kevin Davies, right. the author of Editing Humanity. I do uh, for the audience out there. Do click on the subscribe button right there at the bottom when you see this on YouTube and also the bell which makes uh, sure that you get notified on the next big episode. Uh, Thank you so much. This is Afma Hotra and I hope to see you very, very soon.